we were looking early on for a way to try to um, focus our team on, you know, what are people going to buy? And the, the, the mantra we used was rate, range, reliability, the three R's. Hi, I'm Tom Galuzzo, founder and chief technology officer at IM Robotics. Join in for my new podcast, Crazy Hard Robots, where we're sharing the stories of some of the crazy smart people building the robotics technologies and companies of the future. I have over 20 years of experience building autonomous robots, so I know how challenging some of these systems can be. Listen in and learn as I chat with fellow scientists, engineers, entrepreneurs, and investors building the robotics industry today. Hey guys, welcome to Crazy Hard Robots. We're here today with the CTO of Right Hand Robotics, Lyle Odner. Lyle, it's good to have you on the show. It's good to be here, Tom. Welcome. Um, I'm super excited to talk to you today about autonomous manipulation and autonomous grasping. We have similar kind of backgrounds in how we both uh, founded our companies. You guys have a really good way of looking at autonomous grasping with specifically the three R's. So we're gonna be talking about the three key things that the, the three big R's that you need to consider when you're doing anything with autonomous manipulation and grasping. And uh, why don't you just give us a little bit of a background, Lyle, in terms of right-hand robotics, how things are going and, and how you guys started your company. I think most people who got into this industry probably had a similar set of formative experiences. A lot of us were involved in the world of um, the academic robotics community and particularly the um, DARPA funded That's uh, right. academic robotics community. And um, as you guys started with the DARPA RMH project, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yes. Um, well, it it's interesting. It, it goes back a little bit further with, with uh, right hand. I was initially not in robotic grasping at all. Um, I was actually working in control theory for Harry Asada at MIT. And um, control theory is, you know, it's a lot of fun. You sit in a classroom and do math all day, every day. Um, it's a pretty but, deep rabbit hole in control. Yeah, theory. you know, they, they say the proof of the pudding is in the eating, but um, control theory, the, the proof of the pudding is in the proving. And, <laughs> um, you know, that, that does get dissatisfying after a while. Um, anyway, I was at a uh, winter meeting of the ASME, uh, American Society of Mechanical Engineers, Yep. And um, this is one roboticists don't go to very often. I, I think with good reason. Um, the ASME has split off its robotics into a single summer conference that's uh, actually much more worth going to. But um, we were at this one and um, they had put us, they didn't know quite what to do with us um because i was doing something that was that was a little bit out there it was a little applied it was kind of a passion project of mine and um they what put was it? In, it was a paper on simultaneously using thermoelectric devices as uh, basically as actuators and sensors 
Oh, so cool. you can think of them like a thermocouple or you can think of them like a, um, a heat pump. And uh, they'll work both ways. And it turns out the time constants are slow enough that you can just switch out which electronics you're using, whether you're thinking about them as a sensor or a, or a driver. Um, anyway, yeah, it was a little bit out there. Uh, but I happened to run into these guys, Rob Howe and Aaron Dollar, at this session. I generally rate people I meet in robotics on the sort of internal judgy scale that I, I don't share very often. Unless it's <laughs> nice. And it was really nice with Rob and Aaron. I rate them on the scale of whether they change how you think about your problem or their problem. And that's what they did. They showed me this weird floppy plastic robot hand. And um, yeah. it looked like a toy. Yeah. And then they showed me videos of it working. And I was just blown away that this thing that looked like, um, you know, it didn't look dexterous. It didn't look mm -hmm. like it should be able to do much. And yet it was, um, you know, they, they had this video of uh, just a supercut where they were driving it around on a table and picking up different objects and it, it could pick up anything. Right. So yeah, this was that one of the DARPA RMH hands that they built for DARPA. Well, was this, before this was before that. This is it what was I was saying. This was about 2005. So where okay. this had been funded was a MURI by the National Science Foundation that Rob had done with his advisor, Mark Kutkowski. This was the same project, I think, on which Jorge Cham was doing the little robot cockroaches. Okay. Do you remember those? I've seen, so, I've seen, I've seen those, yes. Yeah. So this was, you know, a while ago. And um, it got me thinking, though, I came back from that conference, and I remember I made about half a dozen robot hands in the next week after I, uh, I saw that one. And it kept coming up because the session we were in turned out to be really great. And um, a guy who's now at Columbia, Sunil Agrawal, um, he put together a special journal issue from our session. So... Aaron's paper kept coming back up and coming back up. And all of a sudden here I was reviewing this paper. And then, um, and then I started running into Aaron at the grocery store because Harvard's just up the street from MIT. Um, and um, it really just um, wouldn't leave my mind. Anyway, jump forward to about 2009. I was, um, I was graduating from MIT and I ran into Aaron in the grocery store again. And he said, Hey, what are you doing after, after you graduate? And I said, Oh, I have no idea. He said, well, how would you like to come down to Yale? We can get you a postdoc or a soft money faculty position or, or what have you, you know, just come on down and we'll build some robots. So I did. Um, Sounds like fun. Yeah, it was amazing. I started as a postdoc and one of the first things we did was this, DARPA Arm H. And uh, this was interesting because DARPA was trying to, uh, they were trying to take a scientific approach to grasping. But the way they had decided to do that was they were going to give six teams identical hardware. And then they were going to see what everybody would do. Right. And sort of like a controlled experiment. And uh, Rob Howe walked into the program director, uh, Robbie Mandelbaum's office. And basically sold him on the idea of, well, what if you had a red team? What, what if you had um, 
a team that was not really doing much with the software, but was trying to make alternative hardware because I think the hardware they had given, were, were you involved in that project? Yes. Yeah. On so team? I was on Drew Bagnell's team. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, yeah. they had given everybody a Barrett hand, which is a beautiful piece oh. of machinery. Yep. But uh, if you look at the paper when that was designed, that was designed in 1985. And our, our basic thought was, well, if you had given, if you had given all these DARPA teams a, a computer to work on that was designed in 1985, they'd be pretty blunt about what you could do with that, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. really not a great... You wouldn't get very far. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really not a great idea to, um, you know, and, and in fact, what happened, you know, what we saw at the, uh, the first big uh, program review down in Florida was... Um, people converged very quickly on the limitations of the hand. Uh, because for example, you could not get a simple fingertip grasp of an object. It was very, very difficult. It was tough. It yeah. Was tough. Um, because they had these breakaway clutches. And so if you pushed it too far, you'd exceed some breakaway clutch and it would, the hand would do something yeah. weird and try to eject the item. We started thinking long and hard about this because what, what we had realized very quickly, um, I, I took a graduate student and gave him as a kind of week-long project the goal of making a grasp planner. You know, we were watching all these software teams do this. And so we made a really simple one. All it did was take a connect and um, look for sort of center of mass and moments of yeah. an object segmented off a table. Was he able to do it in a week? Yeah, every time. This thing was driving around, picking up objects every single time. And, and the hand was very derivative of the, of the SDM hand. So it was kind of this floppy looking hand. Yeah. It was not really great for planning. Um, but uh, you could just kind of point the hand at an object and ram it into it and then close the fingers. <laughs> and it would do it every single time. It's kind of, it's kind of like... Uh giving a more sophisticated compliance to those hand that, that claw game that you play at like the the arcade that you got to drop down and just randomly grab objects if you get close will it grab it well enough absolutely absolutely yeah. our goal was to win that game and <laughs> um time. never drop an item again yeah it was it was fascinating um but it was definitely it, it was definitely not quite there yet so you know mm -hmm. What we had at the time, again, we were kind of a red team, and they had actually opened it up to make a, a whole sort of red team category. You were you were referencing ARM H. They had divided it into ARM S for software and ARM H for hardware. That's right. We had three teams, and everybody did something um, really fascinating. Um, it was really cool to see what's going on. Which, what were the teams? I don't remember which teams to run that. There was a team from Harvard. SRI, you know, the former Stanford AI lab. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, the guy we still keep in touch with from that was Morgan Quigley, the inventor okay. of Boss, was, was on that team. And he actually designed the firmware for the first of the commercial hands we did at Right Hand. Uh, That's really cool. As a side project. And then there was uh, a team with Mark Kotkowski and his student, Dan Aukus, actually ended up working at Harvard when we started the company, too. He, he ended up, um, I think, doing a postdoc for Rob Wood, and now he's at Arizona State. Um, 
So all of these guys, it was a, it was a tremendous place to be. There were just, um, I, I think Ken Salisbury was involved with the SRI project. So you know, he's kind of the man on grasping and manipulation. Matt Where Mason, is he? Oh, Ken Salisbury's a professor at Stanford. Matt Mason once at told Stanford. me that his uh, signature accomplishment in life was uh, getting his dissertation stapled to Ken's and published as Mason and Salisbury. <laughs> And Matt Mason, for the, those folks that don't know, the Matt Mason was recent. He's at Berkshire Gray now, I believe, right? Yes, yes. He's and, my uh, counterpart there. That's right. And um, but before then, he was leading the uh, robotics institute at at CMU. Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, any rate, so uh, so Matt gave Ken that praise, and and I tend to agree that that um, Ken basically defined for a generation how people grasp. Although one thing I will say is um, the whole reason why this school of weird robot hands that I've sort of stumbled into over the last 20 years of my life, um, the whole reason this class of hands works is that we throw Mason and Salisbury out the window. Um, <laughs> you, you just That's don't think of it. take little pride in, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, they've got, they've got a very... Um, I, I think what people really like about Ken's approach and the whole foundational thesis he runs with is that he reduces the problem of grasping pretty elegantly to a free body diagram type problem. Yeah, right? kind of the force closure view of exactly. Of There's a balance of forces between the hand and an object, and you can, by taking a whole bunch of partial derivatives, you can find a linear expression that describes you know, exactly what the forces should be on the object. Okay. Now, the problem with this, and, you know, this is, it, it's right there in Mason and Salisbury, if you read this, the problem with this is this is almost never uh, really a tractable thing to do because anytime you have a multi-fingered hand in contact with an object, uh, you're almost always over-constrained. Your problem right. is always over-determined. And the whole idea behind these underactuated hands, these hands that have this strange kind of floppy behavior, is they're intentionally built so that they're not fully constrained before they make contact with an object, so that after they make contact with an object, they're generally exactly constrained. They're still what they call statically determinate, which means that the forces are predictable. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the big things that makes this whole class of mechanism work. And this is not a big secret. This is something that I think people have grappled with on and off since the late 70s. But we're only now, I think, just realizing how important that is at scale. So fast forward a little bit now. After Armage, talk about founding right-hand robotics. And, sure. you know, Leighton Yarrow and all those guys. And I think this is the other common thread of experience that we share is um, we were all coming out of this golden age of DARPA work, the, the Gil Pratt program management era, right? So um, for those of you who may not know who Gil Pratt is, he's uh, currently the director of Toyota Research Institute. He was previously a professor at MIT and then Olin College, um, but um, he 
got himself a job at DARPA and very quickly became totally indispensable. I think they gave him just about every robotics program in their portfolio. He did lead some amazing programs. Uh, and yeah, yeah it, was, uh, it was behind um, all of the Boston Dynamics robots, the Atlas-legged robots, um, all of this DARPA arm both the software and the hardware he was right. building those programs. So there was this glorious age when we were all living pretty high on the hog. Um, mm -hmm. and then right around 2013, we all became aware that Gil was going to leave uh, DARPA and that we were all going to have to get real jobs. <laughs> and about this time, there was this wave of acquisitions in robotics starting in 2012 with Amazon's acquisition of Kiva Systems. Yep. And that really kind of shook us awake because we thought, what? People are going to pay, what was it, $750 million yep. or something like that? Um, and that was paid in pre-AWS Amazon stock. So right. those guys did very, very well. Yeah. Um, so first there was Kiva Systems and then there was the uh, the wave of Google acquisitions. I remember at one point, yes. Gil invited us down to a um, trial of the Atlas robots in Florida. And we set up our booth and we were right between Boston Dynamics and Shaft on the weekend that it became public that both of these companies had been bought by Google. <laughs> <laughs> right. Google bought like a wave of like seven or eight robotics companies. Boston Dynamics was one of them. Yeah, Aaron Edstinger, who was yes. Aaron was also involved in ArmH. Okay. I think yeah. he was he was one of the guys who was on the SRI team, if I'm remembering correctly. I think he had a company, Redwood Robotics or something like that. Yes. That acquired. Yes. Yep. So it was um, you know, kind of an all-star cast, and it was just very clear to anyone who was paying attention, including you and me that we really ought to get out of academia as soon as we possibly could and start our own company. And um, yeah, here we are, uh, eight years later. Did you meet um, Leif and Yarrow at, during the RMH project? Yes. Um, with working for Rob? Yes. So Leif had um, just started at Harvard around the time I had um, left MIT. And uh, he was the graduate student who was involved in our DARPA project. Got it. And um, Yarrow had come on as a postdoc. Um, he had been trying anything he could to get a job working for Rob Howe. Uh, <laughs> he, he just had fallen in love with his work and cold called him and just kept calling him and kept calling him. And finally, when this position opened up for RMH, you know, he was on the top of Rob's list. So. Oh, that's awesome. Um, that's, that's how it goes uh, for anyone who wants a life lesson out of this. <laughs> pays off. Yeah, that diligence. Yeah. So for the three of us, it was just abundantly clear by the time we got to the end of this program that um, we really needed to be out in industry. And in fact, um, Mick Mounts, who had founded Kiva Systems, uh, was in the Boston area where we were. Right. And was looking for companies to uh, invest in and mentor because he was just about getting to the end of his uh, Amazon 
Yep, tenure or whatever. Yep, that's right. So and, yeah, so he, and he came on our board now, correct? Yeah, he came on our board after he left yep. Amazon, which is really great. Uh, just to understand um, the challenge of trying to use venture money to start essentially a hardware company. It's you have to be uh, very disciplined about how you're moving to market, very focused, trying to yep. keep this as narrowly scoped as possible because you get one shot. Tell, um, how did you, how did you enter the market with right hand robotics? Because the, the technology that you guys had working with Rob Howe, um, and DARPA evolved, right? So you've, you, you, your technology springboard, you use kind of the DARPA H project as a springboard for what you guys do now. With yes, the that you're making and the software that you're developing, and how did that well, all happen? It was interesting. It, it happened in stages. You know, one thing you will notice if you see videos of what we did for DARPA, our current robot hands look nothing like the hands that we um, were making, and that's because we're solving a different problem. Yep. Um, one of the things that was clear is we needed to think much more about motion planning sort of from the inception of the hand. So the hands that we see, I, I won't of course go into much detail, but they are designed so that it's much, much easier to plan about where they will be as you move them. Right. The hands we were making for DARPA, um, they're still operating on exactly the same fundamental principles. They're just um, they're just redesigned. The other thing that we've found, and I'm sure you've found, is um, you absolutely cannot put in the field anything that won't last at least a million cycles. Right. More, you know, it's got to um, last for many years, and that reliability has to be there. Absolutely. And that was something that, um, you know, DARPA is generally. Uh, looking for something that's a proof of concept. They're, they're thinking years out, and they're actually mostly worried. Um, they told me on more than one occasion, they're worried about um, surprise, the element of surprise, right? They don't want to be surprised. So their idea is not to see something all the way through to fruition. Their idea is to make sure that they're not somehow blindsided by a development that someone else comes up with I see. 10 years from now or something like that. But as a result, um, they're, they're fundamentally unconcerned if there's a reliability issue in your prototype, as long as it demonstrates the, the basic principle that you're attempting to prove out for them, that's sufficient for them. So we had to take our design and strip it out. For example, we used um, tendons, in our original mm -hmm. work with DARPA, and I know that the apparatus they gave you guys also was all tendon driven, both the hand and the arm, and um, was totally replaced by a, um, you know, we're using a robot arm that has harmonic drive gearboxes, we're yep. using, um, you know, geared transmissions now, and we have a much, much more robust um, finger design that doesn't rely on any of the delicate sort of hard on soft 
molding that we were previously using. But you still have a lot of the compliance associated with these fingers and so forth, correct? Yes. Yes, we do. So the fundamental principles are still in play. That's the real trick is um, you have to figure out a way to, to apply those principles without um, any showstoppers. So, um, you know, and sometimes that means um, stripping out things that were instrumental to your research or, you know, you, you often, um, it can be kind of a gutting process to uh, go from something that, that you obviously invested years in to a, a fieldable product. But, uh, but there's a certain degree to which you, you just have to grit your teeth and uh, yep. simplify. And that reliability is key. And that brings us to one of the three R's, the key R's uh, in your kind of go-to-market strategy in, in terms of how you guys are presenting right-hand robotics right now. So I really like your framework for, can you share with us what are the, sure. the three R's of grasping? Yeah, we, um, we were looking early on for a way to try to um, focus our team on, you know, what are people going to buy? And the, the, the mantra we used was rate, range, reliability, the three R's. It's an interesting way to divide it up because you can think of this as kind of a multiplicative factorization of throughput. You know, what customers pay for is throughput. So they want it moving at high rate. But yep. high rate is no good unless you can pick all their items or a vast majority, which is the question of range. So if the range of SKUs you can hit inside a warehouse exceeds, I think for most people, they, they have a number between 70 and 80%. And it's unless you're above that threshold, it's not worth it to them to think about automation because the challenge of choosing which goods go to your robot or not is costly than the robots save. Yep. So... Rate and range are very important. Then, of course, reliability, the third R, is a multiplicative factor against each of the other two. So if you can keep 100% uptime, then it's just down to your rate and range. Um, but obviously, you know, everyone's got some decimal points in there somewhere. Um, That's right. You know, even if it's only planned maintenance or something like that. This gets into questions of human factors and other usability features of your product. We end up spending a great deal of time on reliability at this point. That makes sense. I mean, no, no machine that's ever been created lasts forever, right? So you have, you have to find a way to, uh, to operationalize these technologies in a way that actually makes them usable and practical. Um, so I'm curious how, how how you do some of that those things because you said you mentioned that kind of getting to that 70 or 80 percent uh range is critical and that makes sense right because if you don't have that that mix up then you're going to spend more money you said on um the kind of the upstream processes of figuring out what goes to the robot what doesn't go to the robot how do you work with people and, and manage that range in in the operation well, it's both a um, it's both a matter of people management and a matter of the machine itself. Um, you know, obviously, coming from a research background, um, 
looking at the variety of objects that you can manipulate with a robot, that, that is the problem, at least as far as the researcher is concerned. You know, it's taking objects you've never seen before and imaging them or otherwise um, scanning them to figure out how you're going to grasp them and do that successfully. Um, it's exciting to us because this is a place where basic research can pay dividends. Uh, but we've also found um, you have to do a great deal of education to users because warehouses are kind of a wild west right now. Um, you know, fortunately, I, I'd say the large retailers are changing that. But um, when we first started going into warehouses, we found there were no quality management tools. You know, nobody was sitting there and thinking about a general theory of how this happened. So you would get things like totes showing up to our robot. You know, our robot basically picks out of boxes or totes and then places the objects wherever it's told to place them. It can do things like scan for barcodes or, you know, you put a, um, a sensor to weigh the objects or something in line. Yep. You could do that to induct it onto a sorter or something like that. If a tote shows up and it's full of trash on top of the object, so you have your objects and then you have a pile of cardboard sheets that are just stacked on top. Um, you know, the challenge is... How does that happen? Well, the way it happens is really a matter of human organization. If you have a theory of quality, for example, Six Sigma or some of these other paradigms, um, what they will tell you, one of the biggest things they'll tell you is to eliminate as much variation as early as possible in your process. So as goods are coming inbound to a warehouse, you know, typically they come in off trucks, you unload the trucks, and then you have to decant the goods, meaning take them out of their shipping boxes and put them into some standardized container to run into the warehouse. And this is a feature of every material handling system, whether it's Kiva or, um, you know, you will at some point have to do this unless you're symbiotic. There, there are people who are trying to just handle the cardboard cases. Yep. We won't, we won't get into that yet, but the vast majority are um, working in decanted containers. And the challenge is, if those guys are simply paid by the crate they unload, if they're not rewarded for keeping the inventory clean, they're not gonna do it. Now, it's, it's a little silly because you will have to remove that trash someday, whether the picker removes the trash or whether the guy on the inbound side who's decanting removes the trash, or whether the guy at the end, when this goes to some quality assurance station because it's full of junk, has to do it, it's going to cost you the same person's labor no matter what. That so a lot of this is just really getting straight with warehouse operators that we're in a new era when we're working with automation. Um, we really have to be thinking about this in the same way you'd think about an automotive assembly plant or you know, some other uh, sort of quality-focused enterprise. And like I said, I, I think the big players in this market are understanding it. It's maturing very fast, but we're starting from zero. You know, the automotive industry has had 100 years to figure this out. E-commerce is you know, really yes. 
20 years old, right? Five years old. So a lot of these things are still coming together. That makes sense. And of course, the robots can't handle everything, right? They're not going to have the range of being able to detrash and remove all these things yet. They can't reason about that at that level. So that kind of gets at your, uh, that can really impact your reliability and, and, and other factors, right? Yeah. And some of it is just a matter of uh, a knowledge problem. One of the examples I often like to show new employees is uh, you can find, if you look it up on Amazon, a 25-pound anvil, <laughs> like a steel anvil, in a box. And it's not a very big box either. They, they give you the cube dimensions right on the website. Um, and you can imagine this thing coming in on a tote to your robot. Um, you can easily find objects uh, that will fit inside the totes, which is generally how people decide how to route something. That makes sense. You just think about which tote will it fit in. So if it will fit inside the totes, but there is absolutely no way you can pick it up, you need some way of understanding this. And as of right now, it's a very, very small fraction of inventory. You know, the vast, vast majority of e-commerce goods uh, unless they're in the sort of ships in own box category and pieces of furniture or things like that. Right. The vast majority of them are under, you know, two pounds. Um, okay. Yep. They're generally small items, but you have to, you have to have some way of inferring. If, if you know, you're not going to pick something up, you have to be aware of that. You have to be able to notify somebody. Um, and that all comes down to having the right data and infrastructure in the in the operation, right? To be able to know ahead of time what should be routed to a robot for grasping. Absolutely. And it also depends on your integrators. So um, one of the key features of a lot of these big systems is generally one party who is involved in networking all of the equipment and putting it together. They may not even be the people who are manufacturing it. For example, Auto Store makes uh, an amazing prefabricated automated warehouse system. They don't assemble it for you. You have to hire a third party to come in and do that. Um, and one of the places where these integrators compete with each other is on the quality of their software and the quality of their integration. So, um, this is one area we're very excited about because what we found is a lot of the people integrating warehouses today are intensely interested in how they can improve on the next guy as far as how you understand and categorize your inventory, how you present it so that you're not doing expensive fallback operations. For example, if you have to try and fail on your 25 pound anvil every time someone orders it. That's very <laughs> expensive. It's very good to be able to catch on and yep. know what to do with that. Predict that. That makes sense. So I'm curious, Lyle, what, where do you see things headed now that the technologies are starting to become present in these warehouses? We're starting to move from a wild west to maybe a more standardized and uh, automated future. Where do you see this going? What do you see the next major milestone, so to speak, for the industry? I'd say we're already, we're already seeing it. At least we're seeing the early stages of it. Um, 
we have one deployment in the Netherlands, in Doven, that is running lights out. And if they cannot handle it, it's an auto store deployment. Wow. Yep. And everything is running through the robots. And if the robots won't handle it, they won't ship it. So the wow. idea is this is fully lights out fulfillment. And um, yeah, this is, this is happening today. It's happening in early stages. Um, we've not yet seen these get cookie cuttered out everywhere, but right. these days it's going to happen. Um, we see people already thinking this way, which is brilliant. We're super excited about this. Um, you know, you also see signs going up out front of every retailer this this holiday season. You you can probably uh, find out front. We're hiring eighteen dollars an hour, twenty two dollars an hour. <laughs> That's right. Um, I think the pressure for automation has never been higher. Uh, people are very worried about inflation, which. Um, I think generally is a bad problem. I, I'm yes. I I want to be very careful because um, you know I don't think people in automation are profiteers when it comes to things like rising labor costs. But at the same time, part of what we're trying to do with this technology, you know, technology generally drives down the cost of basic goods and services. And um, what it means is there's a ripe opportunity right now for us to do something about this. That the way we're going to get, you know, you perhaps the best analogy is um, when we were thinking about the, um, you know, we have some guys who came on with us who, who were working in telecom, you know, back in the 90s when that was a really big market. Um, and they were talking about the days when uh, switchboards were operated by people. Now, if you think about it, it was mathematically impossible for everyone to have a phone. Right? <laughs> because who's going to operate the switchboard? That's right. Yeah. And, and I feel like that's a similar position we're in now. And one of the reasons why we have problems with um, wage inflation and this just brutal competition for labor is because e-commerce will not be something that can benefit everyone until it is automated to the point where it doesn't require everyone working in a warehouse somewhere to provide that. You know, Amazon has hired as many people as live in the state of Vermont, I think was the, yeah. the latest see what you're saying. Um, image, mental image I, I heard for it. Um, you know, there's, there's no way they could hire the number of people, people. Who live in the state of New York or, you know, right. so we have to find a solution to this sooner or later. And hopefully that drives down inflation and, and keeps inflation at bay, et cetera. And I, I'm certainly looking forward to that. Those days when, you know, people are managing more robots and the robots are doing more of the work to keep our costs down. Lyle, anything else uh, we haven't talked about? Thanks. I, this has been a wonderful conversation. Oh, no, it's been great talking to you. Uh, say hi to Leif and Yaro for me. Sure will. And uh, no, it, congratulations on all your success as well. I'm really excited to see more of uh, right-hand robotics out in the field.
you know, grasping products. I think you guys have a fantastic technology and team. So uh, keep it going. (laughs) You too, Tom. All right. Uh, Lyle Odner, CTO of Right Hand Robotics. Thank you very much for your time. Guys, check us out online. If you're listening to the podcast, you can watch a video on YouTube. If you haven't seen it before, you can see Right Hand Robotics. It's just righthandrobotics.com, correct? That's correct. All right. Well, we'll see you next time and we'll have you back on the show soon. Thanks, Lyle. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye.